Hello, and welcome to the Language of Mindfulness podcast. This is a podcast for people who want to have more great conversations in your life. You want to connect, you want to speak authentically, and you want to listen deeply. This is how to do it, and it's the real deal. So why should you listen to the Language of Mindfulness? Because in every episode, I'm going to give you tips and guidance I've learned in my pretty extensive career of coaching and practice from the best and brightest in the field of interpersonal communications, public speaking, meditation, group leadership, and somatic psychology. And we're going to have interviews with some amazing people about their groundbreaking work. It's my goal to give actionable and uncommon tips and advice in every episode that you can implement right away. So subscribe or follow now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you don't listen, you're going to miss some great stuff that you just won't hear anywhere else. I'm your host, Brett Hill, and welcome to the Language of Mindfulness. Hi, this is Brett, and I wanted to talk today about a very important question, and that's can mindfulness be damaging? Can it be harmful to you? If you look this up on Google, you'll see quite a few articles that can be kind of concerning, like, and raise the question of like, well, maybe I shouldn't even try this because I don't want to get hurt by doing, you know, mindfulness. And, um, and those are reasonable concerns for a potential for a subset of the population. So let's just start at the, at the top of this question. And that is that for the vast majority of people, Mindfulness and mindfulness meditation is going to be beneficial without any other qualifications. Um, there are some people, however, for whom I, I personally wouldn't recommend it. And, um, and those are the kinds of things we're going to focus on now. So just to be clear, it's not at all the kind of thing that is true for most people. Now, how do you know? Well, I'm going to just start at the end, which is that in general, if you try to do mindfulness meditation of some kind and you feel worse afterwards, you feel like you're angrier or upset or even out of control or something comes up that kind of really takes you over in terms of your, you've had a, a memory or experience or a bad one and, and you feel out of control about it, um, don't, don't do it again because uh, that generally means that there's something in your neurology that is not collaborating well with the process of becoming more mindful um, via a meditation practice. That doesn't mean that there aren't techniques that you can use to become more mindful. It just means that sitting down by yourself, closing your eyes and going inside and paying attention to what's going on is not the best approach for you at this time. There are techniques you can use to, that are very effective that don't involve um, that particular kind of practice. Um, so it's not, is mindfulness harmful? It's like, is this particular way of becoming more mindful harmful? Now, it could be that any time that you start to pay attention to your experience um, in a direct and conscious way, that that's triggering because what's going on in you is uh, kind of alarming and unpleasant to be with. Now, there's just alarming and unpleasantness, which is not un unusual for a lot of people. There are people who are... They sit down and they become more conscious of their experience and they realize, you know, I'm pretty tense. I'm pretty angry. I'm pretty unhappy. I'm pretty sad. I'm pretty disillusioned. Just getting face to face with what's true is actually therapeutic when you're doing it from a mindful place because your point isn't to judge it. It's to just notice, oh, there's a mic. I'm 
there's a part of me that's pretty sad. There's a part of me that's pretty angry. There's a part of me that is being, um, you know, anxious about things, about the world or about tomorrow or yesterday. It doesn't really matter. Well, it matters in terms of your quality, but for the purposes of the exercise, it's not diving into what it is so much as naming that it is so. And that that's the reality of your experience. Coming face to face with your truth of what it's like to be you is part of becoming a more whole, integrated person. Because the, the newsflash here is that to have the really big good stuff, you must also be able to embrace the parts that aren't so great. And it's about having a big range, a big embrace that includes all of who you are as much as you can. And what you find is that by saying, yes, I realize that there are, there are parts of me that are really kind of not so happy, you've opened the door to the parts of you that really are. Because it's not an all or nothing sort of thing. You, you, when you decide to close down to the parts of you that are unpleasant, what happens is you close down the ability to be open to the parts of you that are pleasant. It's this. It's sort of like the garage door is either open or it's closed. If you if you close three quarters of the way, not only can you you not things not get into the garage, but things can't get out. So you can't you can't feel the good things in the world as well as you would like um, in order to protect yourself from the things that you don't like. And so you wind up kind of living in this emotionally cloistered world that's not super overwhelming, but it's not very rich either. And so if you want the richness of life, you have to be have the resilience to be able to open this door a little bit. Now, with some people, opening that door a little bit is opening the door on a lot because of the kinds of things that are going on. And there's just traditional emotional woundedness that we all have, like, and and kind of, I would say, in terms of embracing, not, and I, when I say embracing, I don't mean to say that it's okay. It's not like, oh, it's okay that I feel like crap. Just saying that that is true, you know, and yeah, you want to have a different experience, but acknowledging the truth of that is the step towards being able to take effective action to change that experience. Because if you're denying it, you won't make the change that you need to make. So saying yes to it, the truth of it and then um, sets up the frame for you to first to for you to connect with things that are that are really luscious and juicy and yummy in your life. And then also to um, let the energy, I'm going to call it energy, but let the reality of that kind of be alive in you enough that you can move it through and it can become something else. Because if you're resisting it, you develop a relationship to the resistance. It's like I must constantly be in resistance to my experience because I don't want to have this bad thing. And you then know yourself as a person who resists these experiences, and that's your identity. I resist, I resist, I resist. I don't want to engage, I don't want to engage, or or I only want to engage in this very narrow thing, and anything else is unsafe. Then you and you feel yourself in this tension around the things that are not okay. Uh, and that's your identity. That's the way you relate to the world. 
Uh, I'm a guy who doesn't like to connect to people because of this or that, or these kinds of folks. And, and, um, and of course we all have our preferences, but when you primarily experience yourself that way is very different than just simply having a preference. So let's get back to if you want to meditate as a mindfulness practice, which is a perfectly excellent way to go. And, and I should draw a distinction here that mindfulness is not meditation. Mindfulness is a state of awareness, a state of being that um, can arise from paying attention on purpose in the, to your experience in the moment. One great way to develop that capacity is through meditation. Uh, there are other mechanics. There are other ways of going about this. So if you sit down and you start to pay attention to your experience and you have some unpleasantness, that's just normal in a certain way. I'm, I'm unhappy with my monkey mind. I'm unhappy with the way I'm feeling. If you want to have the capacity, just name it and notice it. I'm naming, I'm, I'm noticing that I'm hopping around from something to thing. I'm noticing I'm really unhappy. I'm noticing I'm really anxious. As long as you can sit in that seat of, I am noticing and that that thing is happening, you're fine. Now, it's perfectly normal to kind of jump into the daydream and start thinking about, well, I really should have said this to that guy or that girl, and I really wish I had done this, and I'm really worried about it. And then you, you come back and you go, oh, I'm not paying attention to noticing I'm in my thoughts. Perfect. That's perfect. In that very moment, in that exact moment that you become aware that you are in your thoughts or you're in your feelings, you become mindful in that precise moment. And that's the muscle that you want to flex. That's exactly the neurology that you want to wire up. The one that notices that you're, that you are, have lost your focus in terms of being able to pay, pay attention to your experience. And instead you're in your experience. All of you is in the experience. You're not making decisions anymore about what you're going to pay attention to. You're not aware of it. You're just in a daydream, right? It's sort of the difference between a lucid dream and a dream. If you know what I mean, you have the ability to be lucid. So we're developing those lucid muscles in waking consciousness. Now, People who have traumatic experiences, um, all the way through, can can very, range in a variety of ways, uh, up to and including like PTSD. Um, that kind of thing is wired into your neurology in a very different way than sort of normal concerns and your day to day neurosis, if you will. <laughs> Those kinds of things are wired up in such a way that you, when they get triggered, you it's not. You don't have the ability to bring it back. You don't have the ability to bring back your experience to this observer who can say, I'm, I'm having this experience. There might be some part of you that's kind of way back in the background, but you, that part of you that has any authority over what's going on in you goes offline. And that is because of the way it's wired up in the brain. It, 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 the parts of the brain that, are involved in the, in the lower functions. They get activated. And I say lower functions, I mean like lower parts of the brain. Uh, I hate to use the word reptilian, but the, that part of the brain is involved. And when that part of the brain gets involved, it's almost, it's like a fight or flight sort of mechanism. And like if someone threw a, a, 
a Molotov cocktail through your front window, um, you're not going to sit there and go, oh, I'm noticing that I'm having fear. You're going to go, oh, my God, and bolt out of the room or take some action, hopefully, to deal with the situation. That part of you just gets automatically activated. That's great in that particular circumstance. It's not great whenever you're trying to do a mindfulness meditation. And it's not great because you really want to have the ability to have that kind of flexibility in your life to sit down and pay attention to your experience and not get triggered. Um, so, But for some people, that's what happens because that the energy of paying attention, the focus of paying attention to what's going on is that this, this traumatic event is kind of forward in your neurology so that... It, uh, you begin to notice that this wants to kind of present itself. And if, if you give it much focus, much attention, it just roars through your neurology, through your brain, and through your system, and you don't have any control. That's the key thing is that you, first of all, you notice that you lose control. So you're and the practice of working with people who have this kind of thing is one of learning to approach early warning signs that this you're near a triggering event. So meditation can be a triggering event. And for those of you who have something like that, it's not subtle. You'll sit down and you'll do this. You'll start this meditation and you'll either get triggered or you feel like you're going to respect that feeling. And if you go into one of these meditation trainings or processes and you feel worse afterwards you feel like it's making you worse and i don't mean worse in the sense of like uncomfortable just generally uncomfortable because it's normal to feel somewhat uncomfortable uh when you start this process uh it's sort of like riding a bike in a way you know you kind of fall off and you wonder is this really worth it but you persist and you really get some great benefits out of it that's normal but i'm talking about you fall off the bike and suddenly you are completely out of control and you you have no um, no one home, so to speak. Your, your rational parts of you have are not available to figure out what to do next. And you don't know how to calm down because you can't. Uh, and you, you will over time because organically it just plays out. Um, the energy that's available for that just plays out and you, your system recalibrates. It takes time, though. For people who have that kind of an experience, do not do a mindfulness meditation practice. Uh, and those are the people for whom meditation can be um, a, uh, contraindicated. And, and so instead, there are other things that you can do. Number one is get some help with some uh, professional with prof from professionals who are specifically trauma trained. And I, I mean, hold credentials because I see a lot of woo woo out there around PTSD from people who do not understand what they're dealing with. This is not an auric cleansing sort of scenario. It's a neurological scenario. Not that there's not some of that involved for those of you that go there. And those of you that know me No, I can, I can talk, walk that talk and talk that talk all day long, and it's fine with me, but we have to get to the soma, the somatic part of this, in order to move it along. So you want to find somebody who's trained specifically in dealing with the distinctions, um, the distinctive differences in how trauma manifests in your neurology and can help you in a very, very conscious, deliberate, structured way to manage 
how you relate to the fact that you are a person who has a traumatic experience in your system uh, and who you are now at your day-to-day, moment-to-moment as a result of that. There are some fabulous uh, teachings out there. One of them is uh, like somatic experiencing can help um, is one that I'm familiar with. And another one is uh, stuff from when I was trained. Um, there's a woman named Pat Ogden. And she, you can, I've got her screen up over here. Um, for those of you that are, are helping other people, you might want to go to NICABM, the National Institute for Clinical Application of Behavioral Medicine, NICABM.com, and look up Pat Ogden and some of the other people there. They have very, very good training on how to help people who have trauma in their in their body, in their mind, um, that is clinical-based, that is somatic and mindfulness-based. Uh, Pat came from the Hakomi world, which is where I, I was trained as well. I actually have been in a few workshops with her a um, long time ago, uh, and now she's a, a thing. She's a name and, and well-known and, and famous, written several books on the topic. And So uh, I would strongly recommend that you check that out because there you will find the mechanics and the advice on therapeutic approaches to dealing with trauma in clients. And uh, for those of you that have trauma, you want to find people who have done this work. Uh, might even be useful for you to to take to, to sit through some of that, even though you're not uh, a clinician or a therapist. Uh, so you understand what it's about, because because I think understanding can be helpful. So um, that's a little bit about the conditions under which mindful meditation might not be prescribed. Another thing, so let's let's talk about if you don't want to do or can't do or think you can't do the mindfulness meditation, because I find a lot of people who think they can't do mindfulness meditation who can, they just don't want to do the work. They just don't want to get on the bike, you know, because they know they're going to fall off and it's like, ah, forget it. Or they did it once. I did it three times and it didn't work, so I quit. Okay, you know, you have to have a little more moxie than that to kind of get your neurology aligned. It's sort of like if you sit down to play the piano and you did it three times and you didn't succeed in in being concert ready, would you give up? And maybe you do, but you can't then say, I tried to play the piano and it didn't work. <laughs> it's, which is, you know, it, it's more like you have to, um, give things a chance organically, like what's it take, like lift weights three times and you didn't build any muscle. You have to, it's an organic system. You have to do it enough to make a difference. And the payoff is so incredible that it's like, if you knew what it was like to be more mindful and present, uh, in your world, um, then people would do it constantly is, is, and that's of course my particular point of view simply because, uh, it is such a massive, massive improvement over life without it. What can you do when you can't meditate or you don't want to meditate? Um, on my website, I have a, uh, an article about, um, you know, ways to approach that. Hold on. I'm going to put this on pause for a moment and see if I can find that article. Yeah, I have a web, I have a blog article on languageofmindfulness.com called A Great Mindfulness Exercise, No Meditation Required. And what this is, now remember the definition of mindfulness, according to John Kabat-Zinn, is paying attention on purpose, on purpose, in a particular way, non-judgmentally. So 
this is basically simply being present with your in the moment experience when you're not meditating. And that can be anything. So you walk out to, but so since it can be anything, let's make it pleasant. It's better to choose non-disruptive events like someone shouting at you is a really great time to be mindful, but it's a really hard time to be mindful. So let's choose something easy. You step outside, you see the sky, the sky has full of puffy little clouds and you take a moment and you look at those puffy little clouds and go, Oh, look at those puffy little clouds. They're so fun that they're floating up in the sky and they're puffy and they're moving and you can see the shading. If you take time to look, or maybe there's a sunset and you notice the sunset. And the, th- the trick is to notice that it's something that's beautiful, something that's interesting and something that is pleasant in your experience. And when you pay attention to that, you notice it and then you decide on purpose. That's the first thing to pay attention to it. And it's in the present moment, right? Because you're not thinking about tomorrow. You're not thinking about anything, you're paying attention to the cloud, you're not thinking, oh, that cloud is like the one I saw yesterday, or that cloud. instead, you're just noticing the cloud, go, oh, wow, look at that, that wow, you let that wow be resonant in you, let yourself, and then you sink in, you settle in, you savor that wowness, kind of like, oh, yeah, like a fine wine, like a sommelier, a wine connoisseur drinking, Hmm, what's this like? Well, in that moment, he's not, or she's not thinking, she's just tasting and letting this, the sensation of the experience become, uh, bringing a very high quality of attention to your sensory experience on purpose, right? So that's the thing. So on purpose, you're bringing a very high quality of attention to something pleasant, So that's different than just sitting there and closing your eyes and seeing whatever just happened. Instead, we're choosing something that's positive um, and just letting yourself be in resonance with that positivity. Any beautiful thing, any moment, passing a stranger, seeing a child's face, an animal, a cloud, a flower, um, a note on on a soundtrack. It happens to me all the time. I notice soundtracks a lot on, on TV shows or movies, and I listen to them and go, oh, that was really great. And I let myself have that moment of goodness. Those are, those are mindful moments. Now, they're not 15 or 20 minutes of them, but if you add, I mean, like you can do in a meditation, but if you can add 15 or 20 of those to your day, then you've added 15 or 20 great moments to your day, simple, beautiful moments. And suddenly, and and what is your day but a series of moments? And so you are literally improving the quality of your day by adding on purpose these mindful moments. So that's one tip. Another is to um, develop the capacity to um, be really present with any physical motion that you're making. So... Um, sometimes this doesn't happen all the time. Um, whenever I'm making coffee, cause in our, we have a little ritual in the morning where we make coffee and we put the grinds in the filter. And, and so, uh, I'm sitting there and suddenly I'll start to pay attention to my every moment. Like it's almost like a Tai Chi or a Qigong or kind of yoga. If you're familiar with those, they're not yoga, but Asian practices where you like, um, you know, you get really present with your experience and your of your motion so maybe there's a, there's a motion like this in qigong and then there's hand movements so in this case my my practice is i'm opening the door 
I'm reaching in. I'm becoming very aware of the weight of the cup, the temperature as I put it down. I'm putting a little device for the cone on top of the cup, balancing and feeling, and becoming very, not necessarily slow, but very deliberate. Maybe you've seen a Japanese tea ceremony, which is a ritualized um, ceremony where the, the geisha uh, can, is performing it in a very um, mindful way, very, very precise way. Those are all great practices for people who have some way that they they cannot be uh, present as easily in a meditation process. And so consequently, build these into your moments, like taking a shower every day. Become aware of the water on your skin, the feeling of the shampoo, the way it rinses, the way it looks, the water drapes down the glass of the shower. Um, those can be very rich experiences, and they're just there to have. All you have to do is be present for them. So that's a way that you can develop a really rich mindfulness practice and not meditate one iota. Uh, you can do the same thing with people, and this is where the language of mindfulness comes in, paying attention to the quality of sound of speech in someone's voice, the way they move, the look on their eye, the laugh, the tilt of the head, letting yourself be nourished by these things. Ron Kurtz, the creator of a company, would call it non-egocentric nourishment. It's not about me. I'm not trying to make me better somehow. I'm appreciating very something else in the world just for the sake of its own beauty and letting that reality become a part of your experience. And when you engage the world from that place, it changes what you say. It changes how you interact and it changes. And those changes are a good thing. And that is how you interact in the world in a mindful way and can speak then the language of mindfulness. Thank you. So that's a wrap on today's edition of the Language of Mindfulness podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. If so, please leave us a review on iTunes and follow along on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. We'd really appreciate it. And check us out at languageofmindfulness.com where you can sign up for a free coaching session or download our PDF on eight ways to be more mindful in a virtual meeting at languageofmindfulness.com slash eight, number eight ways. Thanks a ton, and we're looking forward to a lot of great new content coming up as well. Have a great one, and stay present. Thanks.